0: There's a lot of different reasons why um, policy owners sell. Many times, it's just the opposite reason for why the new in- the insurance was put in place. You know, they've sold their business, they're retiring, their spouse pre-deceased them. Uh, Maybe they've gifted out the majority of their wealth. You know, right now in the market, there are buyers that will purchase $100,000 face amounts. There are buyers that will purchase $50 million face amounts. So it's a market that serves all socioeconomic levels and all policy owners. So whether they're an individual, a trust, a business, even a charity, you know, all of those policy owners have this life settlement option as a potential solution for them before they surrender laps or materially change the face amounts of their policies.
1: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson and for I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you?
2: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: I, I am also good. I'm doing very well. I'm just trying to get enough work done so that I can in good conscience leave for a semi-long weekend to New York City.
2: Ooh, so, New York sounds fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Any big plans?
1: Not really. My plan is to eat good food.
2: That's, that's in, easy to do.
1: Yeah. In great abundance, probably like five or six meals a day kind of, uh, eat good food. I, I just will just wander around and eat. I think I'm going to just do that for days on end and then I'll come back.
2: That That's a pretty good vacation. If you go on vacation and you don't come back 10 pounds heavier, <laughs> like what did you do? What did you do on vacation? Did you work well, out on vacation? Like, no, you just need to eat all the good food.
1: See, I have this problem where I, uh, I'm like the same weight that I've been since I was about 18 years old. <laughs> and so I don't think that's necessarily going to be an issue, but just, I'm just giving you a fair warning. So if it doesn't happen, you can't accuse me of not having a good vacation based on this standard you just set for everybody.
2: All right. You're just going to have to give me like photo evidence, <laughs> you know, okay. I'm at a hot dog stand. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm getting this food just so I, I know you're truly enjoying all of the, the, the good gastronomy in New York.
1: Yeah, minute by minute, minute by minute updates. So yep. be prepared. You will be very tired of my trip by the time my trip <laughs> is over.
2: I'll be jealous. I'll be very jealous of all the good food. That's,
1: okay, well, that's fair.
2: Sounds good. It Sounds sounds like a fun trip.
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It'll be a good little break. Pre-summer uh, surface of the sun uh, temperatures here, so... Get a little bit of a reprieve. It's starting to warm up. So every time it starts to warm up and it gets a, somewhere around 90 in this part of the world, I start thinking, "Why am I here? Why am I not somewhere nice?" So this <laughs> is phase one of "Why am I? Why am I here? Why am I not somewhere nice?" Phase two begins at the end of June in earnest. In earnest. So uh, the, hopefully this will tide me over
2: definitely. Well, and you just came back from Yuma too. So add plus 5, you know, mm-hmm. on onto the temperature there. I, I could mm-hmm. see why why you're going to get out of here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. That makes two of us at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh talking about trying to get out of places, um we are joined today by our good friend Jamie Mendelson. Jamie is an executive vice president at the Asher Group in Orlando, Florida, although residing in Montana. So, you know, some, somehow, somewhere on the continent, uh, Jamie can be found at some given moment, I suppose, uh, between Orlando and Montana. So, Jamie, thank you for joining us.
0: I am excited to be here and excited to talk to both of you. When you start talking about summer trips and, and little vacations, I'm going on what I would consider my first, like, vacation and obviously pre uh, COVID times. uh, We're going to Alaska in August, so I am excited about that. It will not be an eating um, vacation, Rachel or uh, Brent, so I don't get to look forward to that, but we'll be doing a lot of fly fishing in the middle Mm. of the National Forest, so we'll see. Mm. So I won't be putting on the 10 pounds of success there, but hopefully it'll be uh, good weather, to your point as well. So that's exciting. Yes.
1: Fly, well, when is that?
0: The end of August, so the weather's okay. pretty decent in Alaska, yeah. um, and it should be nice outside of King Salmon area, but, cool. yeah, it should that's be. That's a fun trip. I hope yeah. so, <laughs> that's the plan, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see.
1: Unless you get skunked, you could be like the the only people in Alaska who get skunked fly fishing.
0: It, it should uh, not happen on this, on this river where we're going to be, so... <laughs> It'll be uh, it should be great. I'll do a little fly fishing in Montana this summer also. So it'll be um, it'll be fun. But no, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to meet uh, your audience and speak with you.
1: Yeah. Well, for the three people in the world who don't know anything about you or the Asher group, why don't you at least give us the 30,000 foot view?
0: Sure. Um, Asher is based in Orlando, Florida. As mentioned, my family owns the company. We started it about two decades ago. We specialize in working with advisory teams and policy owners around the country to value existing life insurance policies. And we're either valuing to them, valuing them, pardon me, to then represent policy owners in the sale and the life settlement market, or we're valuing the life insurance policies for other estate and business planning needs. So I'm really laser-like focused on uh, valuing existing coverage. We don't write life insurance. We don't do wealth management. Um, we are focused every day partnering with advisors and their policy owners to help them better understand the fair market value of their life insurance assets. So I'm a twin based in Orlando, living in Montana. It's about as exciting as it gets. Um, and I like to fish, obviously, from my earlier comments.
1: All fun things. All fun things.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. Well, so, Jamie, you kind of teed it up a little bit, what we're going to be talking about, obviously, life insurance, right? And I actually had the pleasure of hearing you speak a few months back and I spoke to the Southern Arizona State Planning Council and I got to learn about life settlement and just the sale of life insurance policies. And I had never thought about that before. And so I learned a lot. And um, I think that can be kind of the focus of today's discussion and all about life insurance, basically. So I think it'd be good to first start off with the basics, right? So for the how I was five months ago, the uninformed uh, individual on what even is uh, a life settlement, uh, what is a viatical settlement, kind of just going over all of the basics there, laying the groundwork. Then, you know, when we're talking about the sale of a life insurance, how is that being taxed? Right. We love tax. So how is that going to be taxed? Um, then looking at, you know, when we've got fiduciaries who are going to be involved in this transaction, we've got trustees, how does that all play in together? And then just out of curiosity, we're coming out of the pandemic. So how in the world has COVID-19 affected life insurance policies and, you know, kind of what you've seen the last year? So
0: does that sound like a plan for the two of you? Yeah, it sounds good to me. I am, I am ready when, uh, when you tell me to get started. So I'm mean, a yes. Awesome. Yeah, well,
2: we're I just going gonna- to yeah, we're gonna let you run with it. Okay. Um, so can you kind of just start off with the basics then? You yeah. know, we what is a life settlement?
0: Uh, So, what we're really talking about today is the importance of treating life insurance as an asset. So, think about for the next, you know, 20 minutes of this discussion um, about life insurance the same way you think about other ordinary property, whether that's real estate, art, or jewelry. And the same way you have other property and you're trying to make a decision on what to do with it or your needs have changed – You decide you want to understand the value of it. And then once you understand the value of that property, you make a decision on what to do with it. Do you want to keep it? Do you want to rent it out? Do you want to sell it? So related to life insurance, a life settlement by definition is the sale of an existing life insurance policy for an amount greater than the surrender value, but less than the death benefit. So really, a life settlement isn't a product sale. It's really a service to your clients, um, to the policy owners that that you work with, um, to those that are listening to this call that have life insurance, and really thinking about the life settlement option as an alternative exit strategy to surrendering or lapsing a policy. So that's really kind of base level for everyone as we're moving forward is thinking about life insurance as an asset. Treating it the same way you treat other ordinary property that you have, understand the value so that they can make a decision on what to do with it. And the marketplace today that exists is a highly regulated marketplace. So what we're talking about is regulated by departments of insurance and financial services all over the country. 100% of the country allows for the life settlement transaction. Probably 46 states or so have some type of uh, regulation on the books on the actual sale and transaction. So it's a very consumer-centric transaction that exists today and a service that many of the advisory teams that we work with want to make sure that they understand, um, which is why I was excited to be invited to the call, just so that they don't miss that opportunity for their policy owners, that their policy owners aren't throwing away their life insurance assets or just giving them back to the carrier without first understanding the value.
1: Well, it's such a like niche area that I think it's something that people do miss. Like they forget that, that life insurance itself may have value outside of just, as you were pointing out, a surrender value on one hand, or a death benefit if somebody actually dies while the policy is in place. So it's it's certainly an area that I think a lot of say lay people who or maybe aren't quite as familiar with the industry wouldn't even think of. And then you extend that out to professionals who also don't think about it as an option. And I think to your point that's that's really what it is. It's an option when somebody's evaluating what they can do and and what the options would be available to them when they have a policy that they don't necessarily want to keep, you know, it should be on the list of, of things that you're checking to figure out whether that's the road you need to take or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's key is I speak all over the country. Um, Virtually, I've been doing a lot during COVID, so we can touch on kind of COVID's impact to the industry as well as that in a little bit. But, you know, when I used to speak around the country and be in front of people, I'd hold up a piece of paper and I'd say, you know, the value of a life insurance contract isn't just the death benefit. But it's its assignability, that ability to actually assign it to another party. So when you look back and I think it was, um, I mean, o- over 100 years ago, the Supreme Court said life insurance is property. Um, but I think a lot of people have forgotten that and they think about it as being bought for a specific purpose or protection. And when that that need no longer exists or the affordability of the policy is something that that can't uh, be maintained, they just immediate reaction is give it back to the carrier or just just throw it away, let it lapse. So to your point, you know what we try to recommend for a lot of advisory teams and fiduciaries to their clients is adding a simple question to a checklist or part of a discovery or application process, asking the question, you know, when was the last time you had your life insurance appraised? Because we're not saying you should sell your life insurance policies. A life settlement, again, isn't a product sale; it's a service. It's an outcome. For policy owners, when they've made the decision, they no longer want need or can afford the life insurance policy. So just getting people in the habit of of asking the question, when was the last time it was valued, so that policy owners think about it, again, the same way they think about real estate art or jewelry, let me understand the value, so then I can make a decision on what to do with it. So, no, that, that's a great point. That simple kind of check the box on a checklist on bringing up the option or um, discussing, you know, this is a potential solution for different clients looking for liquidity, I think has been powerful, especially during COVID. We actually saw an uptick in our business over the last 12 months with a demand from both Um, individuals, you know, personal planning type situations, as well as business situations, where clients were looking and saying, what vehicle do I have? What property do I have that can create five, six, seven figures of liquidity very quickly? You know, in less than 90 days, you can take an asset, liquidate it, monetize it to help fund other, you know, areas of the plan. So COVID, we saw a lot of that where it was, oh, here's a piece of property I have that I can liquidate to pay employees or buy the inventory I need or help me maintain my lifestyle or independence. And then you have the other side of it where people were were having cash flow issues during COVID and they were looking and saying, I can't afford the life insurance. You know, even if I need it, I really can't afford it. So what are my options? And their advisory teams or them being aware that this option exists, I think um, when it works, it can have amazing results for for clients. You know, all of a sudden it's like found money right and realizing you're not throwing it away or just leaving, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even, you know, million plus dollars on the table by just not recognizing life insurance as that property that that has a market that exists today that is really strong today. So it's great timing for for this discussion because the market today is stronger than it was six months ago. There's a a lot of institutional capital that is purchasing in this marketplace. I'm actually speaking at the European Life Settlement Association's investor meeting at the end of June um, about the market and representing originators, which is, you know, Asher as a firm represents policy owners. So I'll be speaking to uh, this international audience, domestic international audience about the market, about um, the amount of interest and, and opportunity within this space. So, um, yeah, your timing is great for the discussion.
1: Well, can you 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 mentioned something there, Jamie, and I think you've mentioned it a couple times here that maybe bears a little bit of uh, elucidation, which would be uh, what is different about the position of Asher Group in that marketplace versus your typical buyers in a vi- viatical transaction.
0: Sure, that's a great question. And and whenever I'm showing a presentation, it's one of the slides I always try and highlight is the difference between a seller's representative versus a buyer's representative. So, Asher is regulated um, and licensed nationally as a life settlement broker representing policy owners. So, we have a fiduciary duty, a heightened duty, to the policy owner to ensure a best practice, best interest approach to the market. So we don't buy policies for ourselves. Our job is and our responsibility is to go to market, create a competitive bidding situation, multiple bids for the policy owners we represent to really secure and negotiate a true fair market value for the policy, and Asher, as an organization, we're a 34-person firm out of Orlando, and we have a proprietary auction uh, platform that we've created to ensure that competitive bidding environment. Meanwhile, the buyers, the institutional capital that is purchasing policies, the private equity, the hedge funds, the pension funds, the large asset managers and multifamily offices that are purchasing policies, those buyers have a fiduciary duty to their investor. So those parties license as a buyer and you know many of you uh, listening to this caller as we're talking about it today have probably seen ads on tv probably 99 percent of the time those ads on tv that are saying we want to buy your policy um, are just one buyer trying to purchase the policy from a consumer or from an uneducated advisor so they don't have to compete in that auction So a buyer representative represents the investor and and is 100% misaligned with the policy owner and with the advisory team. So Asher creates the auction, multiple bids, and provides price discovery and all of those things. And we're licensed to do that as a broker. Meanwhile, the buyers or the providers are licensed to represent the investor. And that difference, just asking that question, if, if you receive a phone call, your client comes to you and says, oh, I want to sell my policy. I need to do, you know, I need this from you. Asking the question, well, who represented you in the negotiations and in the sale? So that that's a, a great conversation to have uh, during this.
2: Yeah, no, well, that was a, a great explanation. I think, you know, when you're looking at or when an individual has a life insurance policy that they no longer can afford or they just they need the liquidity, you know, as Let's just say you're you're getting older, right? And you've got more medical expenses now. Say you're going to be moving into an assisted living, and you need some liquidity in order to pay for all of that. It's navigating this this field that's very unknown to them, right? Like you said, when you're looking at just your policy statement, you see a surrender charge, you see a death value, and, and that's it. And so it's it's really good to have someone in there to help represent. Um, The policyholders that they really can get the full good value for their other policies. So then the going on to then the the tax cuts and job act um, and how things are taxed. So in 2018, we have the new tax act and that actually helped
0: the uh, sale of life insurance policies. Am I right? Yeah, there's been a a few. There were revenue rulings that came out and then they were updated. And so it's a very, very much a consumer friendly, I think, tax uh, approach to the life settlement sale. As of 2019, there's actually a new reporting where a 1099 LS is provided to every seller. But from a tax liability standpoint, we always say make sure you speak to your CPA or your tax advisory team. But in general, you know, up to basis is tax free if there should be. You know a greater surrender value than basis that portion is ordinary income and then the amount above that is long-term capital gains the majority of the life insurance policies that are sold in the life settlement market are usually convertible term or underfunded universal life policies meaning they have very little cash surrender value so because of that usually only a portion of the sale is long-term capital gains and to your point, there's a lot of different reasons why um, policy owners sell. Many times, it's just the opposite reason for why the new in- the insurance was put in place. You know, they've sold their business, they're retiring, their spouse pre them. Uh, maybe they've gifted out the majority of their wealth. You know, right now in the market, there are buyers that will purchase $100,000 face amounts. There are buyers that will purchase $50 million face amounts. So it's a market that serves all socioeconomic levels and all policy owners. So whether they're an individual, a trust, a business, even a charity, you know, all of those policy owners have this life settlement option as a potential solution for them before they surrender laps or materially change the face amounts of their policies. The market today I mentioned earlier um, is very strong. There's a lot of capital that's buying volatility in other sectors has increased the interest in this marketplace. The low interest rate environment has also um, helped in this market. So what we've seen is very high demand for policies We've seen an increase, though, in policy flow or policy owners that are looking for solutions or looking for that opportunity to monetize today. And it's created a wonderful um, environment to really negotiate aggressively for the policy owners that we're representing. So, you know, for all of your listeners that this seems to be something that might apply to their clients or relevant to their own life insurance policies, just know that the process itself can be pretty simple with just an illustration, usually run to maturity, a date of birth, and some general health information. We can usually, in a three to five day time frame, tell you, is the case viable for the market? And if it is, what's the estimated offer range? Based off, you know, billions of comps that we have on file, we're currently negotiating hundreds of millions of death benefit in the market for policy owners and i do like to point out so i'll say it on on um, this podcast as well is there's no exam required sometimes people think it's just like a new insurance exam where you have to you know be examined this marketplace doesn't require that as long as the insured has gone to a doctor within the last six months and those medical records are available that's about as invasive as it gets there's even buyers in the market today that don't require any medical records. So just by looking at an illustration, understanding the the age of the insured, there are capital sources today that will compete for policies and have have the opportunity to actually sell the policy without providing any medical records. Pretty simple. Yeah. You know, it's it's a complicated transaction, but we do. We try to make it as simple as possible. And, you know, I think that's what's really important for advisors and, and policy owners to remember as they're listening to this discussion is you don't need to be an expert. You just need to know when to call us and when to start incorporating the discussion with clients. So whether your clients are the 40 to 60 year olds or your clients are the 70 plus year olds, this is a market that can be relevant at all ages. Although the majority of the buyers that are buying today are usually buying on insurance over the age of 70. We studied a cohort of policies that we sold in the marketplace. And I think 21%, which is a surprising stat for us, were over the age of 91. And probably 80 plus percent of those insureds in general were over the age of 71. So who's this most relevant to? It's usually the, the older insured or the policy owners where the, the policies are on insureds over the age of 70. However, you know I'm currently selling a policy on an insured that's in his 50s that has some significant health issues that just has a need today for liquidity and is looking at the life insurance as that vehicle to create the liquidity to help fund some of the medical needs as well as clear up some of the debt that they're dealing with. So they want to to address those issues and the policies um, helping them do that. But it does, to your earlier comments, many times we're helping liquidate existing life insurance policies to fund the long-term care needs of a loved one. So that's a good area as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So now going into...
2: How this all plays into when we have more more fiduciaries involved, when we've got a trustee involved, um, obviously the trustee has to act in the best interests of the beneficiaries of the trust. So how does that all play into life insurance and we've, when we're doing a life settlement?
0: No, and you know, and that's something that that is really important to point out because I always like to tell people as we're starting out the review is that all interested parties have to sign off on the sale. So anyone that's part of the transaction from owner, insured, beneficiary, I was on a call today that's a trust-owned policy where that buyer in particular will require potentially spousal consent or documentation of past divorce decrees that show clear title. So the capital that's buying today does a lot of the due diligence that I think most advisors would wanna make sure is documented so that they know that all parties that have any type of interest in, in the life insurance asset are aware of the sale and agreeing to the sale. So the market actually, you know, takes it even a step further that most of the buyers in every scenario will require a letter of competency for. The insured and sometimes the owner to have signed by their physician, showing that they're competent to be making this decision, which I think, again, another layer of protection for trustees or advisory teams that are part of the transaction is knowing all interested parties are going to sign off on the sale. There's notaries that are part of the transaction, letters of competency are usually required. You know, these buyers want to ensure that every I is dotted, T is crossed, so that, you know, if The fund is going to pay x amount of dollars today then pay into that policy potentially for a decade or two decades that when the policy matures and that that death claim is is ready to be paid out that they have clear title that fund manager has clear title to the policy and i think by working with a broker like asher for the advisory teams whether they're making an introduction or they're acting as trustee they're going to ensure that they're protected. You know, they're an arm's length distance from the transaction by a party that is licensed to have a duty to the policy owner. And as a broker, our process ensures that auction, that multiple bid, best practice, best interest approach to to this sale.
1: Yeah, and if if you're a trustee of a trust that then owns a life insurance policy, oftentimes that's a very uncomfortable position to be in unless the trust agreement is clear that it is okay for you to hold life insurance policies, because first of all, it's difficult to figure out what's even happening behind the scenes in the policy to figure out if you have a a viable investment on your books. And then it's, it's an asset where you have to oftentimes feed money in, in terms of premiums. So you're taking trust funds that you're managing, you're putting them into this policy and you're hoping that that expense will be uh, will be rewarded on the backside uh, by somebody passing away. And sometimes you just conclude that paying that expense is not worth the cost either, because the trust itself doesn't have the funds to cover it, or the insured or the family right. doesn't have the doesn't have the funds to continue to cover it. We, we're seeing this uh, pop up in the low interest rate environment where clients own. Uh, what used to be paid up policies that under certain interest rate assumptions would have been paid up policies, but because interest rates are so low, they're not paid up policies anymore. And now all of a sudden they have a very expensive asset in the books and that's an uncomfortable place for a trustee to be.
0: Yeah, it's a tough situation. I mean, a lot of times we're speaking to different trust departments and trustees, making recommendations as far as You know, when you're looking at the life insurance assets and you're doing your normal policy review policy analysis, make sure you're requesting a current illustration to maturity every year so you can see those projections. Also, um, being aware of not only doing the policy analysis, but understanding the fair market value of the asset to see if if the life settlement option is a better solution than continuing to, to fund the premium, or if premium has become unaffordable before you materially change the face amount, see what that, that fair market value would be for the asset. I recently sold a trust-owned policy where the face was reduced by almost two-thirds. We sold the policy and realized if they would have kept it as the full face amount, we probably would have sold it for seven figures compared to multiple six figures, right? So it was still a better option than surrender, but by really thinking about it, incorporating it into the discussion, one, you're creating uh, more cash um, for for the trust, but you're also mitigating the risk and the liability by checking that box on, is the life settlement option a viable option? And then going through the process with a, with a seller's representative, ensuring that you know you can document to the beneficiaries that you did a you know open architecture, price discovery type approach, multiple bids by using this independent um, party involved in the transaction. But, and I think with growing awareness of this marketplace, I think beneficiaries are becoming more aware that this market exists, that we've seen scenarios where policy has been sold and they've gone back to the advisor and say, hey, that's great. Why didn't we do that with the policy we surrendered two years ago? So I think the demand for education has grown. So again, timely um, for your your podcast, because I think not knowing isn't a good answer and a good defense anymore. So anyone that wears that fiduciary hat has a heightened duty, Um, being aware that this market exists, just enough to know when to call the expert. I mean, we were interviewed for the American College for their retirement income planning program where they've incorporated the life settlement option into that discussion for retirement planning to make sure advisory teams know life insurance is an asset. Even if the death benefit is no longer needed for the purpose it was put in place, maybe it could be monetized for um, those lifestyle um, or, or financial planning type needs.
1: Yeah. And you I mean, you basically have A handful of options so to to say put on the the trustee hat which again is a very uncomfortable place to be if you have a life insurance policy and the trust agreement is not crystal clear that you're allowed to hold that asset and you have a policy that's very expensive i mean your options are number one you could continue to pay the premiums no matter what the cost um even though that could be bankrupting the trust or it could be burdensome on the family or the insured you could do what's what's called a a 1035 exchange, which is where you take the existing policy, you flip it into a new policy, presumably using the cash value of the existing policy to fund the new policy, which under different assumptions with different benefits might be a more viable policy in terms of if, if the current policy is not going to survive because it's not paid up anymore. Or you could just surrender the policy, in which case you're going to get back the cash value minus any surrender charges that may still exist. Or you have to you have to sell it if you can and try and monetize it and you have to, you know if you're a trustee and you're doing your due diligence really the onus is on you to run through all of those different options to figure out under under our particular set of circumstances which of these make the most sense so if you haven't gotten to the point of trying to price it out and get an idea of what like I mean, to your point like what is it actually worth is there even a market for it beyond just doing a 1035 or cashing it out. Uh, You haven't really completed your due due diligence checklist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My dad's a dermatologist. So when my brothers first started this company or we're looking at it, he said, you know, as a doctor, I have a duty when my patients come to me to know what all their drug therapies are, what all their surgical options are. And I discuss it with them and I make my recommendation. And he said, if I don't know what they are, if I'm not up on continuing it and I'm not aware of it, he's like, that could be malpractice on me. He goes, so this industry, again, consumer centric, people go to their advisors for advice. Um, they expect them to know what all their options are, and that's, you know, an advisory team or a fiduciary's responsibility. So he said, "I like this market. Um, one, because I'm a senior, and no one's ever told me that this marketplace exists. So this is interesting. And, you know, when it does work, it can really create opportunities for for the policy owners, for the beneficiaries that that don't exist or didn't exist um, when." When owners' reactions were always just our only options are surrender, or lapse, or to your point, those other exit strategies—reducing the face or 1035ing if they're still um, insurable. So a lot of the policies that we see though are policies that either people can't afford any longer or businesses can't afford. So they're saying, "What are my options? I'm considering surrender, or lapse, where you know the life settlement outcome might be a better outcome than those alternatives." The other scenarios are people that just don't need the life insurance they live so long that their plans have worked out so well or they've sold their companies that they just don't need the protection so they're looking at it and saying do i want to hold this life insurance policy and consider it an investment or part of my bond portfolio something like that or i really don't want to to hold this as an investment i'm not comfortable with just you know what what makes it a good investment versus not and like the idea of liquidating today for a lump sum cash offer today, and then freeing up those future premium demands. So, again, I think, you know, big takeaways from the discussion today are just really treating life insurance like you treat other property. You wouldn't make the decision and say, I've decided, you know, I don't want to live in New York anymore because you mentioned it earlier. I know you're just visiting. I'm going to just walk out of my house and I'm moving to Florida because I like the weather. It doesn't get cold here. Um, you're, you, If your client said that to you, you'd be like, no, no, let's appraise the house. Let's make a decision if you want to sell it, or do you want to run it out? But no, you're not just walking away from it. I mean, for decades, that's all people have been doing with their life insurance policies. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm just going to either give it back to the carrier, or I'm going to throw it in the trash. So we're trying to get people in the habit of saying, hey, treat it the same way you treat other property. The life insurance solution isn't going to be a solution for every policy owner but when it is and it does make sense it can have a very significant impact you know during covid we've seen it with with funding those cash flow needs just in kind of everyday uh, transactions we deal with. I mean, we sold policies to create the funds for charities to fund their, their research projects. I mean, during COVID, it's been tough, right? You know, this whole virtual fundraising hasn't been the easiest. People haven't been donating as much in many instances. That recognizing that life insurance assets that have been donated could actually be monetized today to fund, um, you know, their the foundations and the charities' needs can be, it's awesome to be part of, to really see that impact. And then in the other scenarios, you know, I mentioned earlier about 21% of the policies we sold were on insureds over 91. When you think about those insureds, I mean, their kids are in their 60s or 70s, right? Do they need it to protect their kids anymore? Probably not. But people are used to having it or they paid enough into it. So they're thinking, You know, well, I've just been doing it. Well, why not liquidate that today and let that fund their independence or their lifestyle? I've seen families with dysfunction be able to liquidate a policy, have that financial relief and that burden taken away from the kids that were maybe supporting a loved one and brought people back together. So this transaction really can have not only the the, capital event for policy owners, but you know that emotional piece, that dynamic of of what sometimes financial strain can do, or just the the kind of elation and happiness of someone having these found dollars and being able to go on the trip of a lifetime, go to New York and eat whatever they want for for five times a day, or or travel all over, um, you know, the U.S. or hopefully uh, more of the world as as we all start opening up after this pandemic. So it's. It's a great industry to be in. Um, I learn something new every day. I hear stories that, um, you know, that that make me better or I can see the impact from. So, you know, I look at what we do as a public service announcement a lot of times. I mean, I used to fly probably 50 percent of the of the month I was on the road and I'd say very, very little of that time I would talk to the person next to me and they would know that this market exists. Um, And, you know, recognizing in in some, you know, people that have good planning and and very strong, sophisticated advisory teams they work with that just aren't aware of it, haven't incorporated into their discussions and realizing that impact of, you know, it's still property. You know, a lot of even very wealthy people don't just say. I no longer like this piece of property. I'm going to throw it away. They still want to understand what it's worth and, and do something with it. So it's, it's an industry that can impact, you know, also socioeconomic levels. And when it works, you know, outside of just, you know, the the capital event, it can bring families together. It can solve, you know, the financial problems um, for businesses or, or individuals um, or the trustee protection and to the advisory teams, you know, mitigating risk and liability by just checking that box, by going through that valuation process. So off my yes, soapbox, yes. I guess. <laughs> but it, it is. Yeah,
1: well, it's it's obviously a topic of passion for you, which is which is for good reason. As you've, you've well illustrated, it has a lot of benefits and it's uh, it's an important thing for for people to be mindful of and for people to just take advantage of when it makes sense for them and I think to your point it's uh because it's a service at least the way that you guys do it it's something that is meant to add value and I'm, I'm assuming if it didn't add value you wouldn't tell people to do it so uh, so yeah we, we certainly appreciate that well really really interesting we could talk to you about this all day long, uh, but we know that you have a life. And so we'll we'll let you go. Um, if, if somebody was trying to get a hold of you, how would they find you?
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you can go to our website, ashergroup.com, just A S H A R the word group.com, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or our firm Asher Group on LinkedIn. My brothers actually named the company Asher um, when we started it because they wanted an A, so they'd be at the top of every list, but they also wanted a name that had meaning. So Asher actually comes from the Bible, the Old Testament, one of the 12 tribes, and and it has a variety of different definitions, but the one that we adopted, and you'll see it on all of our signatures for myself and our team members is do what is right, you will be blessed. So it's how we approach the market. Um, it's how we approach the families and the businesses that we serve. Um, you know, so if you can go to the website, you can call me, um, my direct line in the office. And you're welcome to, to have my contact information, obviously, but it is 321-441-1119. Uh, so you can reach me there as well or via email. Uh, but we've got a great team of people. Um, we really are passionate about what we do and, and the people we serve and partner with. Uh, so my pleasure to to assist anyone, answer any questions that you have for your clients, for your family, you know, for others that that you represent. Um, and our team, I know, will do a great a great job for, um, for you and, and anyone that calls us. So I appreciate, uh, again, the opportunity of being here today. Visit our website. You know, feel free to connect with me on um, LinkedIn or, or Facebook or other social media areas um, and be happy to give you more information. We have a, um, a policy value quiz on our website as well. So for those that want to just kind of try it out, they have a policy, uh, they're welcome to use that. You know, this market is for more of the older clients as a general rule, 70 plus universal life policies, all face amounts, but um, there's a market really for any policy under the right fact pattern. Uh, So we're happy to discuss that with everyone.
1: Yeah, excellent. Well, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, We know uh, people are busy and it takes time to do these sorts of things. And we know you're a busy person fitting into that category as well. We'll include all of your contact information in the show notes. So people can find it there as well. So Jamie, we appreciate you very much. Thank you again for doing this.
0: My pleasure. Great to be with both of you. Have a lovely rest of your day.
1: Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. uh, Subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law. Basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.